Good morning, guys. I'm sorry it took me um, so long to get this lesson posted. Usually I like to have them up the evening before, but I um, wasn't quite ready to do that today. We'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, God, in one version of the baptism story, we hear John the Baptist proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, you have risen. Easter is here. In the world around us, we still feel the weight and the sorrow and the suffering of this pandemic, but we know that uh, the glory of your resurrection changes everything, changes this story, and we trust in you, and we offer the intentions that we hold silently in our hearts, in our own homes, uh, to your will and your love. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> if we can kind of shift our focus back to last week when you read... Um, about John the Baptist kind of preaching um, in the wilderness and then greeting uh, Jesus and baptizing him in the Jordan River and then finally Luke chronicling the genealogy of Jesus. I want to just unpack that a little bit. You'll notice that John feels quite inadequate. He says, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. Why would I be baptizing him? But Luke wants to make a point of once again emphasizing that John is not the Messiah. This community of Lucan readers needs to know that John is not the Messiah, but that Jesus is. And when John says, I will baptize with water, someone else will come who will baptize with the Spirit, we are left to wonder what exactly does that mean? What is a baptism of the Spirit? Of course, geography matters. It always matters. This is happening at the Jordan River, the same river where the Israelite people, after 40 years of wilderness wandering, um, after being freed from Pharaoh in the grips of Egyptian slavery, they are able to cross uh, the Jordan and re-enter the Promised Land triumphantly with Joshua, the first judge, and the tabernacle within the Ark of the Covenant um, in front of them, leading the way. Notice, though, in chapter 3 how John is arrested before chapter 4 begins. Um, John's arrested at the end of what seems like this speech. We don't really know exactly when he's arrested, but Luke tells us that John is arrested before the baptism story. So maybe John was there, maybe he wasn't there. He probably was there um, to collaborate with the other gospel versions, Matthew's version, Mark's version of the baptism story. But Luke doesn't necessarily want to emphasize the point that John's in the river too, um, that he's been arrested. And so once again, we have this ominous foreshadowing for Jesus's own life. After his ministry, he too will be arrested. He too will be um, punished, executed. So in so many ways, like we've said with our vocab term, John is the forerunner. If you look in your Little Rock Catholic Study Bibles, you'll see an interesting set of notes, study notes at the bottom, that Luke is separating the ministry of John the Baptist from that of Jesus's ministry by reporting this imprisonment of John before the baptism even takes place. Um, so Luke is using this literary device um, to serve as an understanding of these periods of salvation. So John's in prison, separating the period of, of the time of promise, the time of prophecy with John the Baptist. Um, that's coming to an end. And now with the baptism happening and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, the time of fulfillment, which is Jesus's time, his ministry begins. In the second volume of Luke, what we call the Acts of the Apostles, Luke Part 2, which I hope we have time to read, Luke will introduce this third movement, this third epic of salvation history, the period, the institution of the church. 
for as significant of a moment as it is in the gospel, the institution of the sacrament of baptism, we hear very little about it. As I said before, John could have been there if we collaborate this version of the baptism story with Mark and Matthew. John is there, of course, but of course, just the preceding verse says that he was imprisoned. We don't exactly know when. Um, so what I find interesting about Luke's version is it says, after Jesus had been baptized and was praying, we hear this great theophany. And this is a vocab word I just gave you today, theophany. A visible manifestation of the presence of God to humanity. In this case, the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> First of all, this is what I had you uh, meditate on before Easter, and I hope that you did. Um, you are a beloved son of God, and God is well pleased in you. But even this English translation, well pleased, is so um, boring, right? Oh, I'm, I'm well pleased in the meal that I had. I'm well pleased in the grade that I got. The better translation really is that God takes supreme delight in us and certainly in the gift of his son to humanity total, complete delight. Uh, well, please seems so formal and standoffish, but it couldn't be more um, robust, and God's love for us um, couldn't be more personal and familial. This moment in the gospel is a great Trinitarian emphasis, an emphasis of God as a relationship of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The voice of God the Father is coming down from heaven. God the Son is there in the river or the sh on the shores of the river, in Luke's case, praying. Um, and then God the Spirit is making himself known as the dove in, in uh, what Luke says, uh, coming down like a dove. Um, so the Trinity is on full display. Last week I posted a piece of art by Andrea del Verrocchio from the Galleria degli Uffizi in Florence, and you see the three parts of, um, of God's Trinitarian um, form there in that lovely piece of art. So go back to last week's canvas page and, and find that Del Verrocchio um, painting. My um, question for you today for Bellwork was about baptism as an inauguration. Is it the beginning? Is this the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, just like American presidents stand on the steps of the Capitol building and, and take their oath of office in a very formal inauguration? They do not begin their service as president as commander-in-chief until they are inaugurated. So too, Jesus experiences this inauguration, this beginning of his public ministry at the Jordan. There was a Jewish sect, a very minority Jewish sect that had a water ritual. So it's not like this is coming out of nowhere. Lots of ancient cultures had water cleansing rituals. Um, but no matter what, we should be a bit puzzled because Jesus didn't need baptism. He was fully divine. He was without sin. There was no sin, original, personal, social to wash away. Why is he doing this? Why is he allowing John or allowing baptismal waters to flow over him? More than anything, he is giving us an example to follow. He is instituting this sacrament of saving waters, which will be joined and given this atoning power through his death and resurrection. When we talked about the crossing of the Red Sea, when we talked about Moses being lifted out of the water, <clears throat> 
talked about baptism, those um, Old Testament events were prefigurement of baptism, that we in baptism are laid in the tomb with Christ. We die under the waters of sin and death and instantaneously rise again to new life. So Jesus is beginning that atoning work by himself standing in those baptismal waters of the Jordan. Very quickly, a note about the genealogy of Luke. It seems a little bit out of place. Wouldn't this make sense kind of closer to his his birth, his Christmas story, closer to Luke's uh, nativity of Jesus narrative. <clears throat> Again, your Little Rock Catholic Study Bible has a good footnote. Matthew's genealogy starts right away. Opening words of Matthew are a genealogy connecting Jesus to Abraham to emphasize Jesus' bonds with the people of Israel. But Luke is all about universal salvation, salvation for Jews and Gentiles alike. So he wants to trace Jesus's <clears throat> birth, not just back to Abraham or David or any of those kind of Old Testament heroes, but all the way back to Adam, the first man, the first human, and beyond that to the moment of creation with God to stress Jesus's sonship. So then the final thing I'd like to talk about would be the beginning of chapter four, <clears throat> how Jesus moves almost instantly from the baptism into the wilderness existence for 40 days. Um, of course, we see, we walk this time of purification and preparation in the season of Lent, which we just finished. Um, happy Easter, by the way. I'm sorry I didn't say that at the start. <clears throat> um, so Jesus moves into this, this time of preparation for his public ministry of healing and preaching and teaching in the wilderness, much like his people um, before him spent time in the wilderness. The devil shows up. The devil makes um, his presence known to Jesus and tempts him in these three ways um, that theologians and biblical historians have been trying to unpack for centuries. <clears throat> Just like our temptations to sin, these temptations for Jesus are absurdities. They don't make sense. In no way should they be compelling to Jesus, and yet, in his humanity, he is tempted. Now, tempting is never the same as sinning. To be tempted is to be human. It's to experience this pull towards something. Um, but the free choice to do it is what, is what um, moves it to a sin. So Jesus can be tempted and still have his humanity be completely um, preserved and, and respected and his divinity, um, his perfection, his sinlessness be preserved as well. St. Thomas Aquinas, um, a famous saint in our tradition, in our intellectual tradition particularly, wrote a famous work called the Summa Theologia. And he does a million things in it. But one of the things he chronicles is the four most persistent idols that humans across cultures, across languages, across history, across um, ability and intellect, what we pursue no matter what, instead of pursuing a right relationship with God, um, that, that um, believers and non-believers alike replace the yearning for God with a yearning for one power, two pleasure, three honor, and four wealth. Um, 
And so one of the most rich ways to understand this story is to see this temptation to turn stones into bread as this temptation towards making pleasure our only and our first pursuit. And so Jesus's response, we can't live on bread alone, um, is saying to the devil, even our pursuit of physical pleasure, the satisfaction of our hunger, even that can't be put first before anything else. So this is why in Lent we practice disciplines like fasting. The second temptation, hey, throw yourself down from this high parapet, from this tower, you will be caught by the angels, is a temptation to power, to the demonstration of power. Um, why is this absurd? Well, he's God. He he doesn't even need angels to catch him. He could throw himself, he can he can throw himself from a tower and completely supersede the laws of nature. Um, he could fly, right? He could do anything. Um, but the devil is saying, show us your power, show us who you are. And of course, if you know the rest of the story from the cross, the people are going to be shouting the same thing at him. If you are truly God, take yourself down from there. Show us your mighty works. Um, of course, forgetting that for three years, he showed the mighty works of miracles to save people from their blindness, from their inability to walk, from their disease, from their suffering. He was always showcasing his divine power, but he was never doing it for himself. He was never doing it for his own glory. Finally, the third temptation is to rule all. Uh, look, this could all be yours. If you turn to me, the devil says, then you can have it all. You can have wealth. You can have the honor of, of humanity, um, the honor of the kingdom of evil, right? Um, forever. And again, this is a total absurdity. Um, he does rule everything. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the creator of it all. He already rules. Um, he doesn't truly desire the wealth or the honor of, of this world. He desires to draw people to the honor of, of the kingdom of heaven. So both the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River and now these 40 days of wilderness wandering uh, in which he experiences the temptations of humankind show us that this new kingdom that he's preparing us for, that we are about to walk into with the rest of chapter 4, moving forward, um, his new kingdom is going to be a totally unexpected reign. Um, it's going to be kind of not what we and not what the people expect.